This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. On the show today... So they don't actually have the skills to formulate the plan or to sort their ideas into a coherent plan. So it means that everyday exchanges sometimes for these kids or everyday conversation can be quite tricky. The costs of healthcare for children with specific language impairment. And what services are available to help grandparents cope when their grandchild has cancer? That's today on Think Health. But first... The problem with cancer is cancer spread, right? Once the cancer starts to invade foreign tissues, then it becomes very difficult to treat. This is Mary Babawi. Mary is an Associate Professor of Pharmacy at the University of Technology, Sydney. Cancer is a disease of uncontrolled cell proliferation. So the cancer cells are just dividing uncontrollably and so you get an increased number of these cells within the body. Mary's research looks at how cancer cells can become resistant to multi-drug treatments, which essentially means when people with cancer become resistant to treatments like chemotherapy... These sorts of resistances are becoming more and more common and aren't restricted to just one type of cancer. The process of how we form these resistances is a complicated one, but to understand exactly what Mary is doing in her research, we have to take a step back. And first, we have to take a look at vesicles. Well, if we break it down to very simple terms, these are sort of like little bubbles. Vesicles are naturally occurring in the body. They are little power packets. You know, they have potential to impact on physiology, on disease pathology and so on. They are small structures within a cell that carry important proteins. And they were initially thought of in the late 60s as just remnants of cells that you found in a sample tube. Initially, they were identified as platelet dust. Vesicles are also involved in things like metabolism and the transporting of proteins. And what they'll do is they'll shed from their original cell and travel around the body. These vesicles are just part, normal part of cellular turnover. Vesicles also break off from cells if there's some sort of inflammation or stress in the body. It's just part of normal cellular process, normal uh, membrane turnover. Um, it's just a normal, normal mechanism that cells have. Where can you find vesicles in the body? They're found surrounding the cells or they're mainly found systemically, so in, in blood um, and in biological fluids. The medical world has known of vesicles for a while, but only recently have vesicles been linked to research around cancers. 
So the vesicles that I've been studying are cancer-derived vesicles. So we've looked at these vesicles from leukemic cells. They're very small. They have an irregular surface. But if you look at the vesicles isolated from multiple myeloma patients... Myeloma is a type of cancer that affects bone marrow. They're perfectly spherical. They actually look like little ping-pong balls. Mm -hmm. So they really vary depending on the cell of origin. Looking at these vesicles gives Mary a greater insight into what the cancer is. It provides us with a snapshot of the mother cell or the the originating cancer cell. So we can look at the proteins that are on the surface of these vesicles or contained within the vesicle and We can look at the nucleic acids and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. So instead of accessing the tumour itself, we can take a blood test, a blood sample, and it provides us with this window into what's going on with cancers, particularly those that are confined in inaccessible sites such as the bone and so on. It also gives insight into what the cancer is doing. When you have a cancer patient and you look at their blood samples, they have a significantly higher number of cancer-derived vesicles in their blood compared to healthy individuals. And how does it get to that point of there being a higher number of vesicles? What's, What's driving those numbers to go up? Well, in the context of cancer, it's, of course, cell proliferation or cell division. There, You've got a larger uh, cellular burden in the context of the cancer cell, and as a result, you've got more cells there, they're shedding more vesicles. There's another major part to Mary's research, and that's not just how vesicles can provide a greater insight into cancers, but also how vesicles play a role in the spread of cancer throughout the body. But before we dissect that, you first need to understand how our immune cells work. So the cells that we have that fight off things like cancer are these white blood cells called macrophages, which when you translate that from Greek, translates directly as big eaters. And that's what these macrophages do. They eat cells that are dangerous to the body. And these are sort of like sentinel gatekeepers, you know, so they're constantly monitoring the tissue environment for foreign um, cells um, or foreign particles. And when they do come, normally their, their normal role is that if they were to encounter these foreign cells, they would normally engulf them and destroy them. And this retains the integrity of our tissues. But cancer cells pose a number of problems for our macrophages. In this situation, when a cancer cell forms in the body, it does two things. One, a cancer cell will continually divide, causing more and more cancer cells to flow around, which is a problem. But the second thing has to do with vesicles. Remember from before how vesicles shed off from the original cell? Well, they do the exact same thing with a cancer cell. The vesicles will shed off and do something crazy. These vesicles somehow functionally incapacitate these macrophages so they can't engulf, they can't move uh, towards the foreign cell. They paralyse them. The macrophage is stuck, it's frozen, and can't eat up other bad cells to protect the tissue it looks after. So, 
When another cancer cell comes along and sees this incapacitated macrophage, when it approaches this immune cell in the context of spread, the roles switch and the cancer cell eats the macrophage. The cancer cell then has the capacity to then destroy that macrophage itself by engulfing it and swallowing it up. Okay, so this is complicated, but there's another part to this. The vesicles which are shedding themselves from cancer cells and then are paralyzing the macrophages, the vesicles that have this paralyzing ability are only coming from cancer cells that are multi-drug resistant. Now, not all cancer cells are resistant to drugs or treatments. Some cancer cells do respond, meaning, for example, the chemotherapy works and it's able to completely get rid of the dangerous cancer cells. But the fact that some of these vesicles are coming from these multidrug-resistant cancers is important to note. And that's because more and more people are showing signs that they're becoming resistant to treatments, meaning they physically can't get better. So this is a huge problem, particularly in the context of combination chemotherapy, because treatment fails. And the mechanism, the primary mechanism for multidrug resistance is the cancer cell overproduces a particular protein on the surface, and this protein acts as a miniature pump. And when a drug tries to enter the cell, it interacts with this protein and the protein essentially pumps it out from this surface, preventing that drug from from penetrating the cell. And so the cell survives. It's not being exposed to the chemotherapeutic agents. The really sinister thing about cancer, and also the really fascinating thing, is that cancer utilises what's already in the body to spread itself. Mary says it hijacks the body. These proteins that are protecting cancer cells from chemotherapeutic insults, right, you would call it an insult, are also proteins that are required for normal physiology. It's just that the cancer cells have hijacked these mechanisms and overproduced this protein for its own survival. So these proteins play a very important role in the brain, in the gut, in in what we refer to as pharmacological barriers. And these are barriers that it's very difficult for drugs to cross into and it's these are designed to protect vital organs and these these pumps normally line the brain for example and and comprise a barrier in the brain so it's very difficult to get drugs into the brain um, because of the anatomy of the blood vasculature there but also because of these proteins that protect the brain from drug uptake. They, they sit there and they will pump drug back out um, and prevent it from entering into the brain parenchyma. So these are normal physiological mechanisms that we have, but the cancer cells hijack them, overproduce them to aid their own survival. 
What is the research that you're doing into this area to look at tackling these issues of multi-drug resistances that develop in the body? Yeah, so I've got a large program going in my lab and we're looking at a number of things. Uh, We're looking at developing new drugs that can circumvent or prevent multi-drug resistance, so new molecules that can be combined with standard chemotherapeutics that can try and tackle this problem. Um, So we've got some drug discovery going on. We also have a lot of cell biology going on and with a focus on extracellular vesicles, how vesicles occur, so the mechanism for vesiculation in cancer cells compared to normal cells, And that's very important for us to know because if we can define a specific pathway for vesiculation in a cancer cell and that's different to a normal cell, we can selectively target that pathway in a cancer cell while retaining the normal uh, vesiculation in in, in healthy normal cells. Um, And what's that pathway? Oh, well, we're still looking at that. These are cellular pathways, so we're looking at the different proteins within the cell that are involved, different enzymes that are involved in vesiculation. We're really refining that pathway now, and once we do that, we'll be able to target parts of that pathway and stop vesiculation in malignant cells. Mary Babawi, Associate Professor in Pharmacy at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. I'm Jake Morecambe. When a child is living with cancer, it is not only a massive stress on the child themselves, but also their family. Most therapies and interventions available for the family are aimed at helping the parents. But when it comes to grandparents and siblings of the child, these services often lag behind. Claire Wakefield is an associate professor from the University of New South Wales and also leads one of Australia's largest psycho-oncology research groups, the Behavioural Sciences Unit, part of the Kids Cancer Centre at Sydney Children's Hospital. Claire spends a lot of her time working with families to better cope and manage caring for a child experiencing cancer. So generally, I should say, first of all, families are incredibly resilient and many adjust very well and even impress themselves as to how strong they are and how well they manage. But we do know that parents, for example, are at increased risk of anxiety and depression after their child's finished their cancer treatment. Really thinking about, you know, the scary thing that just happened, grieving about what might have been and the things that they lost during that time. What sort of work are you doing into this area and why is that important work? I think a key tenet of paediatric care is that the unit of care is not the child, but it's the family. We know that if parents aren't coping well, then they're not going to parent their children very effectively. So there's been some really clear evidence of that where parents of children who've had cancer who are not mentally well themselves then sort of have less positive interactions with all their children, the child with cancer and their siblings, and they have potentially more negative interactions in the family life. They don't support their children as well. And then a key sort of psychological phenomenon is worrying about the cancer coming back, which can, if they don't receive any help for it, can be quite a disabling experience, worrying to the point of 
of, you know, not wanting their child to go outside or not wanting them to go to school because they're so worried about the cancer coming back that they just want to sort of wrap them up in cotton wool. So how might you offer help to, I guess, a parent who is worried about that, that the cancer may re-emerge? How, how would you speak with them? What sort of things would you be offering them in terms of a helping hand? We have a program for that. It's called Cascade, which is our Cope, Adapt, Survive After Cancer program. And it's a similar format to the adolescent program we run in being an online group program. And one of the sessions is specifically about talking about the elephant in the room, which is that the cancer might come back. And we use a combination of cognitive behavior therapy skills about trying to be realistic about what the risks are and reframing those risks, and also some more sort of acceptance and commitment therapy approaches where we accept the uncertainty because a small proportion of kids will relapse. So we don't want to say, you know, don't even think about it, it'll never happen. But we also don't want you to worry about it so much that you can't, you know, go on to have a happy, normal family life. And in terms of what actually happens within these therapies, is it literally bringing these up in conversation or is it starting that conversation? How how do these therapies actually happen? Well, that's a really good question about what is it that helps people cope with anything. So they really are talking therapies and it's remarkable how much talking can help. We choose topics and have some sort of structured content around things you might do to manage this distressing thought, for example. But a lot of it is parents sharing their thoughts with us and with other parents who've been through similar things, problem solving things together to work out what might help them. Even just the process of sharing it and having someone else say, yes, me too, I feel the same way, can help people to feel like they're not going crazy, they're normal, this is a normal reaction, and that can be therapeutic in itself. What are some face-to-face interventions that you might be engaging in? Our face-to-face interventions are often done just during treatment because that's a time when we have them in the hospital anyway. So one example of that is we have a program called CatNap, which is short for Carers at Night in Paediatrics. And it's a sleep or insomnia program where we have a psychologist who goes around the ward and she spends probably about 45 minutes with them talking to them about their sleep and how they're going when they're sleeping in the very uncomfortable couches beside their child's bedside at night. And she talks about strategies that might help them to get a little bit better sleep, at least fall asleep more quickly when they're woken in the night and to sort of manage that process better. And we give them a little sleep pack with eye patches and chamomile tea and those sorts of things, things that are sort of evidence-based ways to help parents to, or anyone to get back to sleep in a difficult environment. How about siblings of the child who might be experiencing cancer? Yes, they're very important as well and they have a lot of different experiences too. The initial research seemed to, in my opinion, be a little bit negative about siblings, saying that they might be a bit jealous of all the attention that the the child who's got cancer has, for example. My experience in having interviewed siblings is that we need to think about how amazing they mostly are and that a lot of them are just experiencing sadness because they love their brother or sister so much and they don't want them to be in pain. So I think we need to have a really positive attitude towards siblings. We just published a paper this year about the educational impact on 
siblings when their child has cancer. So they often will have more time off school than normal because their parents are running around to appointments in a different city potentially for the unwell child. We've done quite a lot of work also with the grandparents as well. We were actually the first in the world to really document the needs of grandparents in this population. Yeah, so why look to grandparents and why is your work the first in the world? So I think everybody recognises that many grandparents, not all grandparents are the same, but many grandparents are often the sort of backstop of a family. So what happens in families when there's a crisis is often the grandparents are able to step in and support the family. So that might be emotional support for the parents, it might be babysitting for the siblings, it might be lending money uh, if that's a problem for a family. Uh, It might be practical things like cooking and cleaning and picking up children from school so that the parents can take the sick child to hospital, for example. So everyone has always known that. And clinically, doctors and nurses have known that grandparents are really crucial in helping families to cope better. But no one had really documented what happens for grandparents themselves. So we've done a series of four studies in a row now, where we first of all looked at grandparents' distress levels. And we showed that compared to grandparents of children in the general community, our grandparents had significantly increased levels of anxiety and depression and anger and we showed particularly that grandmothers were at increased risk and also grandmothers where there was no other healthy children in the family. So there was a very strong focus on this only child who had a life-threatening illness. And we showed that there was barriers around grandparents who lived in rural communities and the key reason why they didn't seek help because very few of them sought help for themselves was because they felt they needed to be strong for everyone else. They're giving so much to the rest of the family and not looking after their own needs the same time. You were talking about the catnap for parents who might be staying around the hospital during the time that their child is receiving treatment. Is there similar sort of things or similar sort of offers for grandparents who who might be there at the hospital at the same time? Look, I think that's a a really good area for future work for us. We certainly have the booklet which goes to grandparents and I'm hoping that we've raised awareness in the clinical team about the need to look out for grandparents. Um, But they're a little bit trickier because they're not always at the hospital. They might be at home looking after the siblings, for example. But I think we could definitely do more in that area. I know that we now also have a grandparents morning tea at the hospital to try and help grandparents to connect to each other so they can get some peer support. Uh, And I know also that Red Kite, which is the National Children's Cancer Charity, they also are offering various supports for grandparents, including trialing a grandparent telephone support group as well, which um, I'm excited about too. Claire Wakefield, Associate Professor in the Discipline of Paediatrics, School of Women's and Children's Health and Medicine at the University of New South Wales. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Nearly one in ten children at kindergarten age will struggle with specific language impairment, a language disorder which means children may struggle to talk or even put a sentence together. The disorder can present massive problems for children when they're just beginning their education, but can also result in higher healthcare costs for the child and their family. Paula Cronin is a research fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney, and wrote her PhD on the healthcare costs for children with specific language impairment. Paula spoke to Think Health's Shane Anderson. 
Well, the condition, it's an interesting condition because it um, has quite a high prevalence and by that I mean that it's as common as other things like dyslexia, more common than autism. It's a puzzling condition because children with language impairment often um, have normal development in other areas. So, for example, their motor skills and their hearing and their IQ are all within normal ranges. Um, but it's this just this specific language impairment that is, um, I suppose, impairing their learning. Did you find that watching your daughter go through this made you more determined to do a PhD on the subject? Oh, I just really wanted to know more, I think. You know, once I'd read the literature and they had very few long-term studies out there looking at well, what actually happens if, if we could do this, if we could make a difference at four, what would that mean for her at 15? Or if we could make a difference at eight, what would that mean for her at 15 and then her at 21 sort of thing? And the evidence definitely suggests that the earlier that we do it, the, you know, the better the outcomes. So when you talk about language difficulty, you mean language disorder as well. Uh, Do you include language barriers in that too or just people with difficulty speaking? Uh, I'm really focused on people uh, with language impairment and to explain that group of people, I use often an analogy of starting a jigsaw puzzle. So we all know that when we start a jigsaw puzzle, we see the big picture on the box and we might start by doing that jigsaw puzzle by doing the outside pieces first or sort of focusing on a particular section. Well, for a child with a language impairment, they don't necessarily have that big picture. So they don't actually have the skills to formulate the plan or to sort their ideas into a coherent plan. So it means that everyday exchanges sometimes for these kids or everyday conversation can be quite tricky. Right, and this is something that you have uh, witnessed firsthand, I guess, with your own daughter's experience. So what what was it you were seeing when she was getting medical treatment? Um, I think well, it starts pretty early on. I think you just identify that, you know, your child is maybe not doing as well as her peers um, and it, it makes you think of why that might be and I guess you seek help. Great. All right, uh, so just back to the study. Um, What were the ages of the children that you were looking at? We used a data set which follows kids from four years right through to 15 years. So it really captures their transition into primary school and then into high school. So it covers, um, you know, a good 10 years of their life. And so how was everyday life and well-being being impacted by the inability to access proper medical treatment? My study was focusing on is whether these kids have high healthcare costs. We were able to identify that the kids were seeking more GP consultations and as the GP is the gatekeeper to a whole lot of allied health services and other services as well, it meant we could identify that they were more likely to see a speech pathologist, they were more likely to see paediatrics and also other health specialists. So we're really interested in if they had high healthcare costs and then what they were. Yeah. Right. And the result of that is that they did have higher health care costs? They did have higher health care costs, Could you yes. explain the difference? So they had higher health care costs uh, between four and seven years and then between 10 and 11 years. And we attributed that to, I, I suppose, key developmental time frames in terms of when they're starting school. So they might be having that um, the early testing, I guess, that they have in the preschool or the, in the kindergarten which might identify an additional need. And then there's some sort of long-term research that suggests that at 10, 11 is that transitional time just before high school, that it is another key developmental milestone effectively. So, yeah. Sure. And how much was the costings? How much more were parents paying? It was around 
$300 at four to five years up to about $600 at six to seven years um, and are then about the same at 10 to 11 years. That's a biannual cost, so that's yeah. every two years, yeah. So it was evening out by the time they were at the end of primary school? So by the time they got to sort of 14 and 15 years, there seemed to be no difference in the costs, um, yeah. Right, why do you think that is? Well, it's hard to tell really because we're really just looking at the Medicare data set. So it wasn't actually a full, you know, we're not covering things like private uh, and whether they sought community um, services that wasn't actually included in, in the costs that we managed to look at. So it's quite difficult to actually disentangle what's happening there. Just using the Medicare data alone, what areas does that actually cover? So Medicare covers all your things that you claim a Medicare rebate for. So your primary health care, so when you go to your GP, some allied health services when accessed via the GP, and all your specialists and paediatrics and, and that sort of thing. And what do you hope to change with this research? There was a recent Senate review looking at communication impairment generally, which language impairment is one of those, um, that identified a real need to know more about what's happening for these kids as well as, you know, adults. So I'm hoping to, I guess, inform the literature as to, you know, put more out there in terms of possibly making some policy changes and, and looking at whether there's early intervention that, you know, we could implement that will make a difference to these kids, whether we, we may need to make differences at the education level, you know, which will ultimately mean that their pathways are brighter, I guess. Right. Do you think that um, maybe doctors would also need to be trained to, I guess, communicate or pick up communication cues more effectively? I think that the referral processes that are in place are quite sound. Um, I think the way that it works in the Medicare system is you start with your GP and then they refer on to the speech pathologist. So I think that that works quite well. And how's your daughter going now? Yeah, she's great. She's in year eight. So yeah, she's, yeah, she's great. Really doing well. Paula Cronin, Research Fellow in the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2SER.com forward slash Think Health. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time. <laughs>